Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Why does free speech matter? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Really excited about our guest today, Kristen Wagner. She is the CEO and president and general counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom. She leads the faith-based legal organization protecting fundamental freedoms and promoting the inherent dignity of all people throughout the U.S. and around the world. Since 2011, ADF has won 14 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, including serving on Mississippi's legal team in the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, and Kristen successfully argued two of those cases. She shows up on various news programs, and she has a ton of experience in this area and is passionate about seeing these uh, cases Uh, One, as well as equipping and engaging uh, next generation of thought leaders around kind of casting vision of them to do this, which is fun and what I want to talk about on some of today's podcast. So, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, what I want to do is maybe start with maybe kind of not too long ago, you had an experience that I think might bring this front and center for our listeners on why this matters so much. You had an experience on campus trying to speak there at Yale University. Maybe share a little bit about what happened and even what happened since and kind of set the stage on that. (laughs) Well, it was quite the experience, something that I didn't anticipate having, but the Yale Federalist Society invited me along with Monica Miller of the Advocacy Group of the American Humanist Association to speak on a panel to talk about the importance of free speech and, frankly, civility. Um, It was about a case that I argued, the second case that I had argued involving um, a gentleman named Chike Yuzubunam who was trying to share the gospel on his public university campus in Georgia. He was censored and threatened with significant discipline, even up to expulsion by the university or college officials there. And um, the American Humanist Association filed a friend of the court brief on behalf of our client, Chike, even though obviously the American Humanist Association and the Alliance Defending Freedom Uh, disagree on a number of issues. So we were there to model for the students what it looks like to come together on common causes like civil liberties and to be able to discuss things we agreed on and things that we didn't. Uh, That uh, wasn't wasn't permissible in that um, we had about 120 law students that came in and they disrupted the event, they chanted, they pounded on the walls. One Witness said that the floors shook. Um, It resulted in even some of the conservative students being physically threatened. And and Monica and I had to be escorted from the building by police into a police car. So it was a a significant event that involved physical intimidation and harassment that I hadn't experienced previously. Wow. And that's at Yale University, right? It's at the, not only at the Yale University, but actually the Yale Law School. So it involves the future judges, legislators, uh, leaders of the nation and law and public policy, potentially. And they were unwilling to listen to ideas that they disagreed with and instead engaged as a student mob. Wow, that's that's incredible and probably surprising to a lot of people. Unfortunately, it, it's not as surprising anymore, I guess, how frequently it's starting to happen, obviously, with recent events at Stanford University for other people. And I mean, maybe let, let's start here um, with something that should be obvious, because I think you just shared it, but it maybe it's increasingly not in our culture. 
is at a place where not only ideas are supposed to be talked about, like at Yale University, and where law schools, you know, where people are supposed to be able to argue cases for and against, if you can't talk about things, it's really hard to make a lot of progress. So maybe let's just start at a foundational level. What is free speech and why does it matter for everyone? <laughs> like that's sometimes people think that Christians just want free speech for them. I know that's not what you're saying and what we're saying, but just talk about what is free speech and why is it so important? Well, free speech is the right of all people, regardless of what your views are, to be able to express those views um, and, and to speak them in the public square. It's a right that is a basic human right. It's not given to us by the government. It's a pre-political right, and it's rooted in the fact that we're created in the image of God. But it also has practical, it has practical consequences um, if we don't have it. So, for example, you can think about other countries that don't have free speech. And you also know that those are authoritarian governments. Um, those are governments where the people are uh, essentially lose their rights in other areas like religious freedom. And you can go all the way back to even Frederick Douglass, who was the great advocate uh, for abolition, who shared that, you know, the first thing that tyrants go after is the right of free speech, because we know from the scripture that our speech and our words have the power to set people free, that the truth can set people free. In fact, that's what Christ said in the scripture, and they have the power of life and death. So it's critical that we be able to speak freely. And we also know that in our system of government, our system of government can only thrive when competing ideas are in the marketplace. It's how we pursue truth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely vital. And unfortunately, more and more, I think what we're seeing is people unwilling to even entertain speech that might be different than what they already believe. And talk a little bit about what, what we lose when that happens in terms of just, um, just not only as followers of Jesus, but also as a culture and society. What do we lose if there is no uh, ability to talk about um, things that people may disagree on? Well, again, we first of all, we lose the ability to pursue truth, um, to find truth. The social progress that you've seen that many would um, say has been social progress has been done through the power of our speech. We know that speech has the power to reveal the truth. It has the power to expose lies. It can win hearts, and it changes the course of history. And so if we censor those we disagree with, we're unable to test out ideas, both in the marketplace and in our government, and ultimately, we know that authoritarian regimes, the first thing they do is shut down those that they disagree with just for the pursuit of raw power. Um, that's how tyranny results. And in our country, the right to be able to speak and to contest ideas has been central to the social progress we've had, it, even if you think about things like the civil rights movement. Um, you know, that is founded on, it was mobilized by the right to be able to advocate for liberty. No, that's so important and so vital. And obviously you've been at this for a while. Maybe talk about, because one of the things I think we're seeing is how quickly culture is moving on uh, this issue and others, but maybe talk about how you've seen um, just even the cultural climate towards speech change, even in the last maybe five, 10 years. And what's What's that looking like? Maybe some examples, um, not only some of the ones that you've argued with Alliance Defending Freedom and talked about, but maybe some other illustrations 
of how we used to be able to do some things, but why, maybe why we're where we're at now and maybe what's speeding that up. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom is pursuing five generational wins. That's core to our mission. Our mission is to um, advance the God-given right to be able to speak and live the truth. And as a legal organization that advocates in legislatures and in courtrooms, we're committed to ensuring free speech for everyone, even those who disagree with us, religious freedom for all faiths, even those that don't share our particular Christian faith, as well as the right to life um, and protecting that right to life, protecting parental rights for all families, the ability to direct the upbringing education of your children, of the children. So those are some of the areas that we work in. And I raise that because we're seeing censorship and the challenge to free speech across all of those areas. Every area in which we work, a primary tool that opponents to these freedoms are using is the censorship tool. It's designed to use law or policy to say, you can't talk about that. You can't say that. You can't provide that. Um, help to this person. Um, we can think about it in the context of pregnancy resource centers right now who are doing an amazing job to support and empower women. And yet we're seeing states try to force them to refer for abortion, which not only undercuts the core of their mission, but it also violates their right to speech and their right of conscience. And we can see it in the areas of public universities where students are being threatened and having no contact orders issued against them if they dare to, in class, talk about their conservative or religious views. We see it with healthcare providers as well um, and in the marketplace. So it's a tool that the progressive left is using to essentially amass power and to silence ideas that really promote human flourishing. Um, so that, that's what we're seeing right now. But I think I would also just point out this tool of censorship actually goes, and we can trace it all the way back even to the, the Bible and the New Testament, where we see, you know, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin and those who were the political and religious leaders of the day told them, you cannot talk about Christ. And, you know, we know how those disciples responded in that moment. It certainly wasn't to remain silent. Absolutely. And I think that's a great summary. And those are great um, issues that ADF is, is working on. And we'll come back to the particulars of those um, in a minute. But, um, you know, maybe maybe let's also do this. Um, well, I want to just define a couple terms at the beginning, because sometimes people um, in our culture, you know, in, in many ways, culture is shaped by who gets to control the meanings of words. Right. And so right. religious liberty has become a word or a phrase that um, that has been misinterpreted to mean different things. So what is religious liberty, and why is that important for those who are maybe religious and even non-religious? Well, the protections that we have in the Constitution, um, the U.S. Constitution, as well as in the state constitutions, are really rooted in the concept of us being image bearers of God, and that there are some rights that we have because we're human, and they're basic human rights. There are some things that the government simply doesn't have the power to require. They can't determine ideology. They can't determine orthodoxy. We have duties to God that as individuals, we are free to explore what those duties are and then to live 
consistent with the answers that we find. And we reach different answers. That's the whole point of a pluralistic nation, right? It's that we can come to our own conclusions, but it's not the government's role to tell us what those conclusions must be, nor is it the government's role to violate or force us to violate our consciences when it comes to a higher duty, a higher moral authority. I think you pointed out that uh, those who would oppose religious freedom have sometimes suggested, well, it's a license to do harm or there's no limit to it. And that's just not true. It's not true historically, and it's not true in terms of the precedent. The basic premise of the law is that if you have a belief that God is requiring you to do something or requiring you not to do something, if it's a matter of conscience, then the only way, the only way that the government can force you to violate that conscience is if it demonstrates that it has an exceptional reason for doing so a reason that is of a highest order, something like public safety, those types of things. And it's called a compelling interest in the law. And the government also has to be able to demonstrate that there's no better way to do that, that the interest is so important and there's no narrower way to do it without violating your conscience, that that would justify that infringement on your duty to God, on what you believe to be your duty. And so, you know, physical harm to others, obviously that's one category where there would be a compelling interest and there's no other way to stop that than to stop the physical harm. That's one example that we see in the law. But that's really what religious freedom is. It's not a license to do whatever you want. There are limits that you have in religious freedom as an individual, but there are also more significant limits on what the government can say and do based on those rights. No, that's a very helpful explanation. Uh, One of the things we do, we get to work with a lot of students here at Impact 360, and one of the things that I see that's common around Gen Z is I think many of them are unfortunately interpreting um, religious liberty as the same thing as imposing religion. In your best kind of quick slogan response, let's say you were in a Q&A and a student was like, so why is religious liberty not imposing your religion? How would you quickly kind of answer that? It's, it doesn't, I'm not imposing my faith on anyone. I'm asking the government to leave me alone. Um, so most of the, the, you know, we have the establishment clause in the First Amendment, right, which essentially says that the government needs to stay out of religion. Um, and we have the free exercise clause, which says that essentially the government um, should allow us to have the free exercise of our faith. And those clauses work in tandem. So we don't want an officially sponsored church. But these cases, there's no challenge to that right now. We're not in any danger of an officially sponsored church. The real danger is coming in the government passing laws that are forcing people of faith to violate their convictions in areas that, you know, years ago, no one would have thought possible that we would we would have to compromise on these beliefs in order to remain a part of the public square in order to have our jobs. Um, And that's partly because our government is legislating in many more areas than they ever have in the past. It's partly because the American public is, um, I think, has less of an understanding of religious freedom and fewer of them would call themselves religious and understand what it means to have a biblical worldview. Um, And it's also just a rising hostility. So I think it's important to understand when you seek to opt out of, for example, referring for abortion, 
you're not imposing your view on anyone. Um, in fact, you're promoting human flourishing, if, if we want to speak truth on that, and, and not participating in the taking of human life. And the government doesn't have the right to force you to do that. No, I think that's really well said. And it's very important. And part of half the battle sometimes is kind of slowing down long enough um, to have conversations with people to unpack assumptions and clarify what we mean and don't mean by various words in the process. And so I know that you do this for a living. This is part of your calling. It's part of your um, profession and job. And, and I know you've recently argued cases before the Supreme Court. Um, I think the most recent one was the Dobbs case, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe there's another one. But uh, could you share just a little bit um, a little bit about what that was uh, like, what that case entailed, and why it was important, and maybe give us some insight into that and, and the implications of that. I don't know, if, is that the most recent one, or is there a different one? Uh, the most recent case I argued was 303 Creative, um, and but I would say we were privileged as ADF to be able to be on Mississippi's legal team as it litigated the Dobbs case, including at the Supreme Court, and it was just the highest privilege to be able to be a part of that and the resulting decision. We also helped draft the legislation that Mississippi passed that served as the foundation for that case. Um, and the case is about saving unborn lives. It's about empowering women to have the support they need to choose life. But it's also about a grave harm that people in my profession inflicted on this nation by finding a constitutional right that doesn't exist in the Constitution. And ultimately, that's what the case was about. The implications of it to save life are phenomenal. But at bottom, 50 years ago, in the Roe decision, the court essentially legislated from the bench as a court, rather than allowing the other branches of government to wrestle with these issues and we believe that they would have, uh, you know, that that is a discussion that needed to happen. Ultimately, we also believe that the Constitution protects life through the 14th Amendment. But that's a longer legal discussion and debate that's probably for a different podcast. <laughs> no, that's really helpful and really important because, I mean, it's so such an amazing thing to see Roe overturn in that way. Um and so vital. I mean, I even just saw even yesterday statistics were literally thousands of unborn lives have been saved since that decision because of that ruling, which is just in and of itself um, just wonderful, wonderful to see and to celebrate. And it also, I think, speaks to sometimes when people think, well, I guess the law doesn't really change things or Christians shouldn't advocate in these ways or something like that. But and we'll talk more about that in, in a minute. But what what is kind of the current state of things post row, if you will, in terms of what you're seeing and the ways that maybe states and laws and challenges and, and maybe ways that Christians can be involved and kind of where is the, uh, where is the energy now focused on those uh, challenges and what you're working on and what you're seeing both legally and culturally? Well, I think that in, in these areas, you know, it's easy for us to respond in this age where anger seems to be our go-to emotion, where rage seems to get more attention, um, and either respond that way as Christians at the situation or to respond with just complete apathy and, and say, I'm not going to participate. And I think in this post-Roe era, there's simply no excuse for Christians to not be involved in advocating for life, whether that is at the ground level in 
speaking to their neighbors, um, whether it is volunteering at a pregnancy resource center, there's over 3,000 across this nation to help empower women, whether it's showing up in legislators, there's so much work that can be done. And this is now a discussion and a legislative issue in every single state. So we all have a role to play. And that's vital for people to understand. In many ways, the, the work is, is continuing, but in the, a new part of it is just beginning. And that's what I think people, yes, Roe has been overturned, the federal piece is now amazingly has been changed, but now that opens up new opportunities and challenges for us to keep engaging on at virtually every level, as I understand it, and see it playing out. And so that's so vital for people to see. What What's kind of the current, um, you, you mentioned, for example, the 303 Creative case. Um, maybe talk about what that case is, because I think that has bearing on free speech and why that matters and kind of um, what's what's important about this case and what's at, at stake there? Well, the central question in the case is about speech. It's whether the government can weaponize the law to force someone to speak a message that violates their belief. It is focused on the freedom of artists, but also on all Americans. And again, regardless of their views. So Lori Smith is the owner of 303 Creative, and that's a website design firm. And she creates custom websites, meaning one-of-a-kind websites tailored to specific individuals. In the course of that, she's in Colorado, and Colorado is using what it calls its public accommodation law to say that if Lori wants to create custom websites advancing her face view of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, then she must also create custom websites celebrating a view of marriage that violates her beliefs. And that violates the Constitution, the First Amendment. Um, I think it's also important to point out that in these cases, there these cases have been being litigated for over 10 years now. Masterpiece Cake Shop was the first one that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we could talk about that. But Lori's is essentially kind of the follow-up of the Supreme Court. And it's uncontested, meaning that all the parties in the case agree that Lori serves everyone, all people that her decisions are based on what the message is she's asked to create. So that also means she has clients who identify as LGBT, and she's happy to work with those clients and does regularly. But anyone that asks her for a message that violates her core convictions, she's going to decline in the same way that someone who identifies as LGBT may not want to promote a website that violates their conviction on the issue. Or, for example, a progressively left individual doesn't probably want to take photographs that advance the March for Life or some sort of pro-life rally. Yeah, absolutely, because that speech is, I mean, that's, that's, can that be imposed? Can people be made to say things that, they, that will violate their conscience? And that's a huge thing that's at stake in regards to that. You know, one of the things that I saw that was pushback um, is people like, well, where, kind of where does that stop? Can people just say, is any kind of speech protected? Um, I think some people were like, okay, well, what about interracial marriage? And how would you, so for example, that's an example of something that rhetorically has a lot of punch to it in the sense of, okay, could someone say, uh, well, black people shouldn't be able to marry white people or vice versa? Uh, and how is that different than talking about 
you know, freedom of speech around sexuality issues. How, how might you help people see those things and the important distinctions um, of what's going on there, even rhetorically? Well, that's a, there's a lengthy legal answer and a practical answer. Um, and so I'll try to get both. But I think in the oral argument itself, Justice Gorsuch, you know, made a statement um, at the oral argument that said, this case is about the what, not the who. It's about what the message is that's being requested, not who's being, who's requesting. And in the context of interracial marriage, we know that those who are declining, who might decline, and this is all hypothetical because it hasn't happened, but someone who would object to interracial marriage, they're not going to be serving all people. Um, they're not going to be creating speech that um, for, you know, someone who's African-American in a larger context. And, and that's one thing that significantly distinguishes Lori's case from others. She serves all people. She serves those who identify as LGBT. It's uncontested that it's about the message. But even if you said hypothetically, there is this racist person out there whose only form of racism has to do with interracial marriage, which is, you can see is a very far-fetched situation. But even if that did occur, the Supreme Court has already rightly grappled with that issue. And it said in the interracial marriage case itself, which is a case called Loving versus Virginia, laws that banned interracial marriage were a part of a larger system that were designed to subjugate an entire class of people. It was, we saw those laws play out and also saw it culturally. And in subjugating that entire class of people, the court said that those laws were based on white supremacy and that that was odious to the Constitution. The history of marriage between a man and a woman is very different. No one would suggest that the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman was a law that was created out of some sort of hatred towards other individuals. Instead, we know that all of the Abrahamic faiths since the dawn of civilization have recognized marriage between a man and a woman and the Supreme Court itself, even in Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, the Supreme Court itself said, look, we recognize that people have all kinds of beliefs about marriage between a man and a woman, and that those who believe marriage is between a man and a woman, they're operating in good faith, and their beliefs are based on reasonable philosophical and religious premises. So it's very different than those who would assert racist views. And I think it's also worth pointing out to those who are listening that the Supreme Court has never even essentially censored racist speech because we have historically believed so much in the value of putting ideas into the marketplace and testing those ideas. And we have confidence that the truth will prevail and the danger in allowing the government to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't. And that's what the bottom line issue is in this case. It's not about whether the marketplace can picket or boycott, whether they can remove their business. It's about whether the government itself decides what you can say and what you can't. And I got to tell you, in this era, I don't trust the government to make those decisions. I don't think any of us should, regardless of what side of the political aisle we're on. No, I think that's a very important um, reminder that everyone needs to, to, to consider. And so 
Thank you for working on that. Again, my guest right now is Kristen Wagner. She's the CEO and President and General Counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom. We're talking about these issues of why um, freedom of speech matters, why religious liberty matters, why life matters, and also the legal ways that that gets argued and talked about um, in our country, in particular, to protect those rights and other rights. And so maybe another area that I know you've done a lot of work on and that's very important to think about is one that's get, gets a lot of headlines even over the weekend with the recent issues around Riley Gaines and her speech on, um, you know, what is a woman and, and females competing against biological males in sports. Talk about the importance of that issue kind of legally and culturally um, in terms of kind of what you're seeing and why it's important to make the case um, uh, that, you know, women aren't they're being treated unfairly by having to compete against people who are a biological males and kind of give us a current state of what's going on there. Sure. Well, uh, this issue matters a great deal to, to us at Alliance Defending Freedom for a number of reasons. Um, and to me personally, uh, the first reason is uh, I think that common sense as well as science tells us that there are real differences between men and women and that when those differences are legitimate, they should be reflected in the law. And sports is one of those areas. We also know that areas involving safety and privacy are significant areas of the law where biological differences should be respected. And frankly, when we, we know that when we don't respect and, and make those distinctions, it is predominantly women and girls who will suffer the most. Of course, it's families generally, but it is predominantly women and girls who will be victimized in this process. And that's what we're seeing play out across all kinds of areas, um, in athletics, in domestic violence statistics, in bathrooms, in locker rooms, in dorm rooms, um, in healthcare provision, and, and on all these areas. So talking about the sports issue in particular, ADF was the first, I think, and actually may, might be the only still, organization that has filed challenges to these laws. We started that a number of years ago with the Connecticut suit. That Connecticut suit involves, involves four track runners, female athletes who were in high school at the time, and two individuals who were boys who identified as girls uh, began to compete after just several weeks of, first of all, they competed as boys, and several weeks later, decided to identify as girls and began competing in the girls category. And so many girls were denied placements in um, higher, you know, championships and podium spots. And uh, our, one of our clients lost multiple state championships as a result of having to compete against biological boys because those physical differences matter. And so we started litigating that a number of years ago. That case is at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals right now, meaning that's a, that's a court right under the U.S. Supreme Court. We also have cases in Idaho as well as in West Virginia. And I'll just stop and give you a real brief update on those. Um, the first win that we have had that's gone essentially through an evidentiary hearing is in West Virginia, which we were delighted. That was just a couple of weeks ago that we prevailed in that case. And that case will be going up to the Fourth Circuit. And that was a case involving a female soccer athlete at the West Virginia State University. And then the Idaho case is, and, and West Virginia too, is a case where 
the ACLU and other groups have challenged state laws that have been passed to support and protect women and give them these equal opportunities. And there have been a whole host of states that have done that recently. And we were able to help a number of those states um, think through those issues at a constitutional level and get those laws passed. Yeah, and that's vitally important. So working in those areas is so, so crucial. And I love how you, so in some ways, we're really at an interesting place culturally, right, where we have to argue for things that even two seconds ago, historically, were common sense positions. And I think sometimes people are caught flat-footed because they're like, okay, well, just to identify like the, and recognize the reality that biological male and biological female are actual categories that exist and defending that, that's not transphobic that's not you know hateful in and of itself but maybe talk about the reality of how that's playing out just even culturally when you try to make those um, arguments and conversations well candidly you know you open with a discussion about my experience at Yale and you know the predominant charge that was you know in the student groups and yell yelling at me and and protesting was that I do believe that men and women are equal but that they are complementary, and so that when legitimate distinctions exist, the law should recognize those distinctions. So it's, it was this issue of sports and athletics, um, as well as the issue of, uh, you know, having doctors perform life-changing, irreversible surgeries on children because those children may have expressed gender confusion. And ultimately, this comes down to the science on it, and there are um, a number of experts that say these things are very harmful to children. And of course, it's, it's not even contested that these biological differences play out in tangible ways uh, on the athletic field. We can see it time and again in case after case and expert after expert. Um, and But we also just know that from common sense, that God's created us differently. We're equal, but we're different. And so we are arguing for truth. And I, I just want to point out, too, that some of the best allies that ADF has had in this fight are those who would describe themselves as radical feminists, um, those who may not share our view on other issues, but they do know that biological differences matter and that this is going to cause real harm to women in, in the long run. And that's so important because, again, it really is a common cause issue that's bringing together kind of a hey we need to we need to address this this is this is producing real harm not only for children in in certain ways but also just at, at so many different levels um and so it's 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 got to be something that's talked about and advocated for and so and, and and as we wrap things up in a little bit we'll talk about some practical ways and what people can do and some things like that but i also want to kind of get an update on just kind of related um i know that adf's working on one around maybe the, the freedom for a Christian counselor to be able to talk and be able to counsel in certain ways on these issues. Maybe give us an update on, on the importance of that and maybe why that, um, that is a case that is an important one uh, for us to be arguing because we care about and love our neighbors and love our friends and family. Sure. Um, and it's, it's really a, a frightening law that we're seeing out of Washington State, but we've seen it in a couple of other states as well that have essentially um, passed counseling censorship bans. And what those bans say is that if you are a counselor in many states, but the states that have them, you can face the loss of your license 
significant penalties. Um, if a client comes to you and says, I'm experiencing unwanted sexual attraction, or I'm experiencing gender confusion, will you help me overcome those things or help me live at peace with my biological sex? And what these laws say that is if that counselor helps that client accomplish their personal counseling goals, they will lose their license. And in Washington state, one of those counseling bans exists and it has been challenged. And right now we're asking the United States Supreme Court to hear the case and to, again, affirm the right of free speech. You should be able to go to counselors to achieve your personal goals and the government should not be in that counseling room with you. And that is exactly what the progressively left states like Washington State are trying to do. So we're hoping that the court will step in and again, send one more message about, we've been talking about this in this entire podcast, which is government censorship has no place in our society. Absolutely. And it's so vital. And I appreciate the work you're doing there. Um, you know, we've talked about various different uh, cases that you guys are involved in at ADF. Um, but talk about maybe the one that's maybe in the headlines the most recently, even um, around the, just kind of the so-called abortion pill and the FDA and kind of the what's going on there. Why is that important? Why is that um, important for us to understand kind of what's going on there and maybe how that's being leveraged politically and legally around the abortion conversation? Yes, it's a complicated area. It's also an area in which the Biden administration is essentially trying to go around the court's ruling in Roe. And instead of allowing states to deal with this issue at a state level, they're trying to impose a mandate. And so the facts can be very confusing in terms of how the media is reporting it. But what we know is that 23 years ago, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, illegally expedited and approved the use of mifepristone and its companion chemical abortion drug, misoprostol. And they basically did an end run around the rules that would require the FDA to do the appropriate scientific studies and safety protocols by saying that pregnancy is an illness and characterizing it as an illness. And essentially what has happened is they've updated those, they've eliminated doctor visits and essentially given in to allow politics to trump science. With the help of doctors and medical organizations who have experienced the fallout from this approval, from having to treat women who have suffered tremendous injury from taking these drugs, those doctors and associations challenge that law and we represent them. And uh, a couple weeks ago, the federal district court said, you're absolutely right. The FDA did not follow the rule of law, and they need to go back to the drawing board. This drug was not appropriately approved. That case went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court ruled this week, um, largely saying that the district court was right, that what the FDA did was wrong, they short-circuit the law, and that they should be held accountable. And that's important context to see because, again, just to highlight the earlier discussion that you were talking about in terms of with Roe being overturned and, and decisions and a lot of the legalities being kicked back to the, to the state level, now you've got other ways and means in which people are trying to um, get around those rulings. And so that's why that fight continues, and it's why it's so vital to do that. Um, what I'd love to do is just – 
You know, let's just take a step back because sometimes people go, well, look, I mean, Christians, maybe, maybe how would you respond to this? Sometimes people go, well, look, you know, Christians shouldn't be getting political and legal. We should just, you know, just keep this at a personal level and not be involved in some of these legal fights or political um, expressions of some of these different conversations. Um, as a follower of Jesus, what would you say to them who spends your life to, you know, defending these things. Why, why should we do that, and why is that important? Well, I've got a number of reasons for that. Um, it, it's a pretty long list, but I, sure I guess do. I would start with, I, I think we can look at the examples in Scripture itself to follow the example of we have legal rights, and we should be asserting those legal rights. Yes, we need to do it in a Christ-like way. We want to have... Um, we want to radiate Christ's character in everything we do and to abide in him. But the suggestion that we would not assert legal rights to protect not only ourselves, but our neighbors is, I think, not biblical. And I also think it causes great harm um, to our neighbors. The, the scriptures tell us in Proverbs that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule that people groan. And this is about human flourishing. It also tells us that the purpose of government is that God ordains government to restrain evil and protect what is good. And in our system of government, we have the right to participate in that. So I don't think it's an I don't think it's something you get to opt in and opt out of. I think it's a moral responsibility and a biblical responsibility we have to steward. And I, I would just say Two other things on that. I think um, it matters who governs. It matters how they govern. Um, we can look at examples of where Christians have gotten involved. You know, Christians led the battle to outlaw infanticide in Rome, to stop child abandonment, to stop slavery, to stop um, human sacrifice. And the scripture tells us to seek the welfare of the city. There are just so many reasons to get involved in this area. And if we don't, that vacuum will be filled. And I think that's what we've seen. We know men like William Wilberforce, Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., all of them were motivated by conscience to engage. And we saw significant social progress in that instance. And lastly, I'll just tell you, you know, Jonathan, one thing I hear also is, well, we know that the church thrives amidst persecution. And what I would say to that is actually the statistics don't bear that out. That's just not true. Um, we know God can do anything and work in any situation and that the gospel will move forward and that the church endures. But I would also say that if you were to go to some of our clients around the world right now, because we're a global organization, they would tell you that they wish they had the rights that we had. They would tell you that they are literally facing death because they're trying to live consistent with their faith. And they would tell you that they want us to engage, that religious freedom is something that they need. It's nice to build buildings and to send food to different places, but you tell me what has a greater impact. Um, truly being people being allowed to live freely or, I don't know, cementing a sidewalk on a mission trip. Those things are important. I don't want to suggest that they're not. But I think we cannot respond with a spirit of apathy in this moment. That's so well said. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing 
for Gen Z and today's teenagers is in many ways they're an activist generation. Um, they're looking for purpose. They're looking for somewhere to belong and someone uh, to fight for. And in some ways, um, the secular culture has has done um, a better job in some ways motivating um, teenagers to care about things that that aren't leading to human flourishing. But what I'd love to see, and one, one of the things we're passionate about at Impact 360, I know you're passionate about this at Alliance Defending Freedom, is, is seeing a new generation come to care about these things. But I wonder if you'd share a little bit about your story of kind of why you do what you do and also the calling you have and even just even that a little bit of that journey to your role to maybe inspire someone listening uh, to consider. It's like, maybe I could do something like that someday, or maybe I could be a part of being a solution to something like that and why it's so important. So maybe kind of share some of your own journey and story to, to help us see that. Well, I think one point that is important to make that I don't, I don't know, I didn't even know this when I was um, considering a career in law, but I've, I have seen it again and again, is most of the countries in the world, many of them, at least in the Western tradition, have written guarantees in their laws for free speech and religious freedom for basic human rights. And those are all in their constitutions or their written documents. But we, as the United States, are literally the last country, the last country in the Western world that has laws and is held to refusing to adopt laws that would restrict speech in the way that we're seeing in these other countries. And I think that matters to this moment. Um, I think that it, it, is something that we have an obligation to stand up for. And I think in terms of my own journey, you know, I, I was, I had a little bit of an unusual path in that when I was about 12 years old, I first felt the call to go into law. Um, and I was at a church camp and just felt impressed to do that. And part of that was because my dad had been talking to me throughout my life that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're created for a purpose and that that purpose has to be about serving others and serving God. It can't be about serving ourselves. And so he challenged me to seek God and ask him, what is it that you have for my life? Um, and I believe that that's actually the call of every parent to do in their child's life is to turn their eyes to a greater calling um, and to stop looking at ourselves and what we can get and what we can do even though that's extremely enticing. So I started the journey when I was just a young teenager, and um, it didn't play out the way that I initially thought. I went into private practice, meaning I worked at a firm for about 16 years in Seattle. And then I came to ADF about 10 years ago. I started overseeing the U.S. legal team, and now I'm the CEO and president and general counsel, which means I have the privilege of also being involved in amazing international work that is happening where our teams are literally able to get people out of prison because they have been in prison for their faith and to save lives. So it's an amazing journey, but it's one that, you know, it, the Lord has just exceeded expectations and protected. And I believe he's got a special calling on every individual's life. Well, that's an amazing thing, and I love how you shared that story where you just considered that, um, and and someone helped you cast vision and, and maybe to think about what could be possible. And 
and then kind of as as so often happens the meandering roads that the Lord leads us on to prepare us for what we're currently doing and 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 that's such an important but thing because I mean just think about all the 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 people's lives who are changed because of you and your colleagues at ADF and what you get to do I love that and I love seeing you know one of the things we talk about at Impact 360 a lot is we want to see students not just with a lasting faith but a multiplying faith meaning they're making disciples who make disciples but they also have influence right where they're at and wherever that God has called them to be and how he's gifted them um, to be to live that out and fan the flame for that which is so vital and so I would love for even parents or students listening to this podcast to consider, okay, what would it look like for me to maybe someday be a part of something like an Alliance Defending Freedom or to go into law to protect these rights or to advocate for people who don't have a voice in these areas? So I just want to say a big thank you for doing that and for inspiring that in the next generation and all the work you guys are doing. But I want to kind of wrap our time by um, maybe just share a little more vision for Sometimes people think like, you know, I can't right now in this moment go and argue before the Supreme Court. So what are some things practically as moms, as dads, um, as teachers, pastors, youth pastors, mentors, like what are just some simple things that you would encourage in light of all these kind of different cases and issues that we're facing that you've talked about for maybe to take a next step, a couple of next steps that people could take in the direction of, of doing more if they wanted to get started or learn more or get involved? Sure. Well, I think the first thing I would say is at ADF in this season, we are really grounding ourselves in the pattern of the early church and recognizing that, you know, hostile winds came to the church, but that first wind that came was the power of the Holy Spirit. And that in order to be sustained in times of hostility like we're facing, we have to be grounded in God's word. We have to understand the issues at a very core level and how the Bible applies to those issues in our lives. And we have to radiate Christ's character, meaning that what you say is extremely important. It needs to be correct. It needs to be accurate. It needs to be well-informed but how you say it also matters a great deal. Um, We talk about it in terms of we want to get the lyrics right, but the tune is also critically important. And I think that's true regardless of what professions we serve in or what roles God has called us to in a moment. It's that we know we're facing hostility. We have a view that some would say is a minority view. And that can be a little disorienting. But yet God has called us to live in this time, in this season. He's trusted us enough to say, this is your moment. And I think that's as true for the stay-at-home mom as it is for the lawyer who's serving as the CEO. So I would also just urge you in terms of the students that may be listening, the habits that we develop now, the habits we develop in high school, in college, in graduate school, Those are the habits we'll keep for a lifetime unless we do something intentional to change them. I always used to convince myself, I'll have a more regular devotional life when I don't have an exam, you know, that I'm facing, when the stress level is a little less or I'm not quite so busy. And, And we all know, like, life doesn't get less busy. It only gets busier. And so I would say that also applies to having a spirit of courage, courage in our conversations. And you talked about moms and dads. 
I think the most intimidating, intimidating place to have conversations is at our dinner table. It is with our own children. And we have to step into that space to grapple with these difficult issues to explain, for example, what does Genesis say about men and women and creating equal? How do we have compassion for people that are confused, but also realize that compassion manifests itself in not compromising the truth, but in speaking it with love? I would think of our pastors in that same way. The children in our church are as confused as the children who aren't in the church. And we need to fix that. Um, and lastly, I would say on the teachers as well. I think the big moment is about not being willing to speak lies, to be insistent that we will advance the truth, even if advancing that truth has a cost to it in some way. So there are a lot of ways we can talk about what that looks like. But I think, first of all, it's in our own homes with our kids and becoming educated. I think it's with our neighbors, it's at the water cooler, it's getting engaged in the, the system of just civic responsibility, and it's supporting people who are caught in the crosshairs. The greatest privilege that I have in my vocation is walking this journey out with our clients. And these are not lawyers. These are people that listen to podcasts like this, that attend Impact 360, that send their children to those institutions. These are people that know what the word says, and they are being attacked because of it. And those are the people that stand up. So we know that courage is contagious. We also know that silence is. And I'm opting for courage. And I think that's, that's what Christ calls us to in this moment. Well said, and couldn't, couldn't agree more um, that we, we can't be silent. A followers of Jesus with courage um, if we truly want to care for people well and love people well, then it's got to be aligned with the truth as God has revealed it ultimately. And we pray for discernment on how and when to say those things, but we can't not say those things eventually and ultimately. And so I just want to say a big thank you um, to you uh, and just appreciate all the work that you're doing at Alliance Defending Freedom. Again, my guest today is Kristen Wagner. Um, and again, I just appreciate your leadership there. But maybe as we wrap up, tell people where they can find out more about uh, the important work of Alliance Defending Freedom, how they could uh, get involved or find you or support the work that you're doing. Sure. They can go to adflegal.org. That's our website. They can also certainly find our phone number on there and call and ask questions about us. We're the world's largest legal organization that is committed to protecting speech and religious freedom, and we're global. And I would also just say for the pastors that are listening or those who are attending church, we have the Church and Ministry Alliance. There's a website for that as well, that um, we're able to provide legal counsel to religious organizations, churches, and parachurch ministries, and help them be able to stand up in this moment, too. I think that's wonderful. And if you're a parent, mom or dad, grandparent listening to this um, here at Impact 360, we want to come alongside you as you seek to disciple your kids and impart your faith to the next generation. So if we can come alongside you through any of our experiences, whether that be summer experiences, Propel and Immersion, our nine-month gap year of fellows, um, our two-year graduate experience for our residents, uh, we would love to do that. You can find out more at impact360.org. We've got courses. We have Gen Z Lab. We have podcasts like this and YouTube videos where we're trying to help give you tools to have better conversations, more confident conversations about how to stand up and speak the truth and understand the big questions of life and live that out. But as I think has been so eloquently shared by Kristen today is we can't not be involved 
and we are all called to engage. And whether that's at a um, daily conversational level or a state and global level, you know, God will make those opportunities clear. But let's be faithful as we engage those opportunities and pray for those opportunities. So again, Kristen, just thank you so much for the investment that your team is making and fighting for these things and the truth. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks again for having me and for your great ministry. We love it. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.